Now into Romans. Romans chapter 9. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans with me. Um, As you're getting there, let me read to you the words of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said this about the book of Romans. This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily. How are you doing on that, by the way? Memorizing it word for word? Uh, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. These are the words of Martin Luther 500 years ago, and we are celebrating this year in 2017 the 500th anniversary of this thing that we call the Protestant Reformation. And um, Luther and others uh, responsible for kind of kicking that off. We're going to take the month of October, in fact, as a church, to have a special study series in our 9 o'clock adult Bible fellowship class. We're going to look at the Reformation. So I invite those of you that don't typically come at 9 o'clock to come and join us in this study of Luther and what exactly it was that happened 500 years ago that recovered the gospel and how is that relevant to us today. So that'll be coming up beginning uh, October the first year. Uh, But Romans is this pivotal, just incredibly important book in our New Testament. And it was that book of Romans that kind of ushered Martin Luther into these thoughts about the pure gospel. Um, And if Romans is so important, it's also been said that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in Romans. Some have said that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, and we were looking at that chapter over the last few weeks. Well, if Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, then Romans chapter 9 is the hardest chapter in the book of Romans. Okay? The hardest chapter in the book of Romans, and that's where we are this morning. In fact, one scholar named N.T. Wright has said this, Romans 9 through 11 is as full of problems as a hedgehog is full of prickles. And chapter 11 as well. This is, put your seatbelts on, okay, take that extra cup of coffee, get ready, okay, because this is some difficult terrain that we're going to read and work through here in just a minute, okay? So what I've asked us to do, what I want us to do, excuse me, is uh, Josh Martin is going to read the first 29 verses of Romans. It's a lot. And I want you to uh, have that on your phone or, or stand up and have that Bible if you're able. Stand up and read along as Josh reads Romans chapter 9 for us. And then I will pray for our time as we look into God's Word. Okay, so go ahead and stand with us as we hear God's Word. Josh. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not let us, left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've given us your word even when we find it challenging, even when we find it difficult. God, thank you that you have spoken, that you've spoken through Christ, you've spoken through your holy word. And I pray this morning, Father, that by your Holy Spirit we would receive your word. We would receive it, Lord, and we would embrace it, we would live it out. Father, I pray that if uh, things come from my lips that are unhelpful or untrue, that they would quickly be forgotten, and your truth, your word, Father, would uh, those, those things that are said that are true would be implanted in our hearts and uh, never forgotten and life-changing uh, to our souls. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we've developed this little tradition in our home uh, as we have dinner, and I'm not, I don't recall how it started, but uh, it's a little game we play as we eat, and maybe you've played it before too, but it's called Two Truths and a Lie. Two Truths and a Lie. And we played this once, and now I have a six-year-old who every time we eat dinner, she's like, let's play the game. So we all go around the table, and we share two truths and a lie, and then you have to pick what is the lie. It's, I guess it's our version of trying to discern how our kids lie, and so we can, you know, pick it out when it actually happens. Maybe we're trying to teach them how to be discerning of uh, truth and lie. I don't know how. Anyway, it's a fun game we play. So uh, every time we have dinner, it's wanted, they, they want to play this game. 
Well, this morning I have three statements, two truths and a lie, and I want you to help and discern which one is the lie, okay? Statement number one is this. It is possible for Christians to fall out of God's grace and grip. That's sentence number one. Sentence number two, God chose us to be his children. And then sentence number three, we must believe in Christ in order to be his saved children. Two truths and a lie. Which is the lie? Number one is the lie, okay? Number one is the lie. If you are a believer in Christ, you cannot fall out of his grip or his grace. And that's what we spent Romans 8 talking about. Romans 8 says, it begins in verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will never face condemnation or the judgment of God if you are in Christ. Your judgment has moved from the future to the past. And then Romans 8 ends by saying there is no separation from Christ. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. However, there are Christians, even people that believe the Bible, that sometimes teach point number one, which I think and we teach as a church is a lie. There are some people in our culture uh, that believe number two kind of in just a secular uh, idea. That, hey, God chose us and God chose everyone to be his children. So there's no reason for number three. You don't have to actually believe in Christ. It's just that we're all God's children. That is a false interpretation of number two. There are plenty of people, uh, number three, we must believe in Christ in order to be his saved children. I mean, that's just an orthodox evangelical statement right there. You have to have faith uh, to be saved. But number two, is also a truth of Scripture, and we see it taught not only here in Romans chapter 9, but in other places of the New Testament, that God also, He has chosen us specifically to be His sons and daughters. As we preach through the Bible here, uh, mostly book by book and not usually topically, we don't get the option. I don't get the option of skipping past the hard parts. Skipping past the, the parts of the Bible or Jesus sayings that we just don't find particularly likable, that kind of rub us the wrong way. So as we preach through the Bible, we're going to come to places that uh, make us scratch our heads or maybe it, it makes you even mad. Some of you today, because of this topic and because of this message, your categories are going to be blown apart. Your categories are going to be confused. You, you may uh, be angry. You may have more questions when you leave here than you did when you came. But let me remind us of one thing, and that one thing is that the Bible is a two-edged sword. It is living and powerful and active, and the Bible will offend us. The Bible will cut us up. It will offend us. In fact, if, if you are not regularly or at least periodically being challenged or being confronted by the Word of God, guess what? You're not really listening to the Word of God. You're listening to yourself. The Bible is offensive. There are going to be places where it gets right up in our face, where it steps on our toes, and it tells us, no, this is the way it is, and you need to conform to me, not remake me in your image. The Bible confronts us. The Bible offends us. And one of those places is Romans chapter 9. So let me just say pastorally as we begin this, before we look specifically 
uh, at the text a few other things just by way of, of preface. I believe this part of the Bible. Your elders believe this part of the Bible. I am not apologizing for it this morning, okay? As I talk to people, hey, Romans 9 this week, and they're like, oh, that's tough stuff. You know, are you going to backpedal on it? Are you going to soft pedal it? No, I'm not going to apologize for Romans 9. Here's what I will apologize for. I will apologize for this, is that is I think that many of us in this room are not ready to hear Romans 9. And here's why. It's because in large part, in our Christian subcultures, we, we have so wanted to entice and entertain believers and Christians that we have skipped over the teaching of the hard things. We have failed to give people meat. So my apology is not about Romans 9. My apology is about the church often holds back and doesn't help us grow up and to receive the whole counsel of the Word of God. So some of you may have questions this morning. Some of you may need to follow up with me. Some of you may need, want to talk to an elder about this and learn more. I'm not going to be able to handle all of this and answer all your questions in 35 or 40 minutes. Secondly, while this chapter is admittedly hard, it is good. And it gives us confidence in the power of God rather than ourselves, and it further demonstrates the mercy and love of God, in fact. Another thing, just by way of preference, by way of preface, preface, uh, we'll wrestle with this issue for the rest of our lives. Uh, this, this, this issue of God electing people, of God predestining people, is something that you and I are going to wrestle with for the rest of our lives. I've had to wrestle with it as a believer, as a, as a student of Scripture in seminary, and now as a pastor. And so we continually have to kind of come back to it and refine our understanding and say, well, how does that fit with this? And what about this verse? And, and why we got... It, you're, you're not going to come to a place where this is just tight and, and, and locked up and, and perfectly uh, just okay. It's going to constantly rub up against you. And then fourthly, let me say this. While foundational, while really important, and I think not just a place in one, not just a, a doctrine in one place in the Bible, but found throughout the Scripture, while this is foundational, it's not the only teaching of, in the Bible regarding salvation, okay? There are other places that we can go and talk about the human side of salvation. And by way of just honesty and full disclosure, there are good men and women, believers in the Scripture, that differ on how to interpret Romans chapter 9 as we differ on many parts of the Bible, okay? So there are good Bible-believing Christians who disagree about exactly how to understand this. So with that said, let's dive in. Here's where we're going. The passage itself basically breaks down into three parts. It gives us three objections about this idea. And Paul's going to kind of repeatedly basically say the same thing. But the three objections are this. Here's our three points. Has God's word failed? Is God unjust? And how can God blame us? Okay, that's where we're going. So it just breaks down uh, through the chapter like that. Before, though, he gets to the question of verse 6, has God's words failed? As we approach this topic, we need to see, first of all, in the beginning five verses, Paul's heart on it. And you see here in the first five verses that as Paul approaches this topic, he doesn't do so coldly. He doesn't do so academically from an ivory tower. He, he says, look at verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Three affirmations. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. He said, this is not just my opinion, he says. 
But this is the teaching of God. I'm speaking the truth. And then in verse 2, we see two emotions. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's not talking about this issue of God's sovereignty and salvation without emotion. He loves his people. He, he's grieved that many in Israel have not received the Messiah that has come. So he's not removed. He's not emotionally distanced from this issue. In fact, verse 3, his one passion is that others would be included. And perhaps in, in hyperbole here, he says, I, I wish I myself were cut off so that my kinsmen, other brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith, would be able to be brought in. So the Apostle Paul, while logical in his writing, was never cold in his feelings. And as he talked about this, he moves into the conversation, into the discussion with compassion and still is a faithful evangelist, a faithful messenger of the gospel. In the last part of the first five verses there, he, he talks about the privileges that the Israelites had, that they had, they, theirs was the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. So God had called them sons of God. The Jewish people, Abraham's people, were called the sons of God. God of all the nations in the earth, God chose to work with this one people group and the glory. They had seen God's glory through the tabernacle and the temple. They had experienced God. He had made covenants with them. Moses had received this law, this constitution for them. And theirs, they had the, the, the principles of worship in the temple and the tabernacle, as I said. God had made promises that they would be delivered, that they would have a Messiah. And from Israel came these patriarchs and these prophets. And most importantly, at the end of verse 5 there, is the Christ. Belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, Jesus, who is over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the question becomes, if God has chosen this people, Israel, to be his people, to be his, uh, his work, his showcase on the earth, well, now that Jesus has come, why aren't more Jewish people believing in Jesus? And the, so the, the question becomes, the logical question is, has God's word failed? Has his covenants to Israel not been kept? And so that's the question that we get in verse 6. What about the Jews? If God keeps his promises What's happening with them? Has God's word failed? And so the answer to that question is no. It is not as though God's word has failed. In verse 6 he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children, and not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring of his. What is he saying here? He's saying, just because you're from that line doesn't necessarily mean that you're automatically God's children. There was still this subline within Israel. God chose Abraham, but then from Abraham's descendants, he chose Isaac, not who? Ishmael. So he uses Isaac as this example. It wasn't Ishmael's descendants, but it was Isaac. Even sometimes today, there's this false idea that if you're Jewish, that you're the chosen people of God, and therefore you're automatically saved just because you're an ethnic Jew. A lot of times, Christians have that thought. 
hey, they're Jewish, so they're God's chosen people, so they're saved. That's not actually what the Bible teaches. God chose them, but they still had to be a part of this line through Isaac and through Jacob. And that line of promise, they would come to faith. So when the Bible in the Old Testament talks about Israel, there was Israel and then there was believing Israel. So not all of Israel was Israel, but the believing Israel was Israel, the children of the promise. He, he cranks this down even more with example B, with Jacob. So Ishmael was a product of Hagar, this slave girl. Abraham kind of went ahead of God's plan. And so God chooses the line of Isaac. But then when we get to Jacob, and the second example he gives us there is Jacob is chosen by God while Esau is passed over. And those, these two guys, Jacob and Esau, they both have the same mother. So God is saying, I, choose, I chose from one mother one son, and that was Jacob, not Esau. And notice what he says. Notice what he says when this was done. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good nor bad. What is he saying? The, the election of Jacob was done before they were born, and before they could do anything good or bad, before they could do good works and somehow justify their choosing. They, Jacob was not chosen. God's people are not chosen because of some moral goodness within them, because of anything they bring to the table. But God has chosen his people simply by grace because he has chosen. He has chosen to set his affection on some and pass over others. Maybe like you, uh, maybe like me, you remember in elementary school, you know, you're in PE class or after school or whatever, and you're with your friends and you're going to play dodgeball or you're going to play football or whatever. And so two captains are picked and everybody lines up and those two captains, they choose their teams, right? And they begin to pick who is going to be on their team. And why did they pick certain people that were going to be on their team? Why did they choose that guy first? Well, in, my, in the case of my class, it was Chris Opitz. I mean, if you were playing any kind of sport and you had to divide teams and you were the captain, you wanted Chris Opitz. Because Chris Opitz, even in the fourth grade, was like, had ripped biceps. He already had shoulders and maybe he was shaving. I don't know, but he was just huge. He was, he was ripped. I mean, we would do these uh, uh, presidential fitness tests, you know, and he's like running a six-minute mile in the fourth grade. And I remember one time we, we leave PE class and go to lunch and Chris Opitz is still in there in the gym doing his sit-ups. And the, he sets a record for like over a thousand sit-ups. And one, I mean, the guy was just a beast. So you picked Chris Opitz. Why? Because he was huge and he was ripped and he was fast and he was strong. That's why you wanted him on your team. Because of his merit, because of his work. Some of you, like me, were probably watching college football yesterday, and we're sitting there watching uh, my team just give a spanking to this other team. My son looked over at me, and he said, Dad, did you play football in college? Oh, thanks, son. No, they don't, they don't typically go out and recruit, you know, five, six white guys that are really slow and uh, can't run and chew gum at the same time. 
Uh, but thank you. But almost everything we're familiar with in this life is based upon our merits, is based upon our work. And, and Paul's main point in this whole chapter, and right here, look at verse 11, is in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And that right there was a reversal too. In this kind of culture back in that day, Usually the younger served the older. It was the oldest child. It was the firstborn that had the rights of inheritance and the most power in the family, right? And here, God, by grace, flips that thing upside down on its head and says, no, the older will serve the younger. I'm choosing Jacob. The purpose of God's election is not is that man may not boast in his own works, but that he would revel in God's calling. Has God's word failed? No. Read your Bible closer. God's promises were not to all descendants of Abraham just by race, but it was through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was to that remnant that would believe God. And he still has that remnant today that he has chosen by grace. Objection number one comes in uh, verse 14. He says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then he gives this answer, by no means. In the original language in Greek, it's megenetoi. It's the the most uh, powerful exclamation of no. We saw it back in Romans chapter 6. Should we sin all the more to make grace abound? He says, by no means. Megenetoi. May absolutely not. May it never be. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? No. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. These are tough words. Tough words. And I think basically what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is remember who you are. Remember that it's God's choice, that God gets to decide who he will have mercy on and who he will not. This is demonstrated in Pharaoh. And so really this whole question and our whole resistance comes back in this question of do we really believe that we are the objects of God's mercy? Because most of the time we really just kind of think, no, we're objects of God's love because we're good people. Whereas the scriptures in Romans would teach us that we are objects of God's love and mercy, not because of any goodness in us, but solely because of his grace and his mercy. But at the heart of us, we kind of think, well, I'm a pretty decent person. And therefore, God owes me. Or God owes him. Or God owes her. How could he judge? How could he send anyone hell? And what that basically reveals is that we don't think we're that bad or we don't think they are that bad and we think that God should give grace to everyone 
and he's not entitled to. Let me steal an illustration from Tim Keller. Tim Keller says, imagine, imagine a very wealthy family, and uh, they have decided that they are going to give a, the gift of free college education to the poor or the, those without in the inner city, low-income families, kids that would never have an opportunity to go to college probably for any other reason. They decide they're going to give 20 of these full scholarships to those who desperately need it in the inner city. And the wife, she chooses these students and passes over others. Can you accuse that, that wealthy woman, can you accuse that wealthy family of being unfair to the others that don't get the college education? Is the family therefore ungenerous or unfair? No, that no one was entitled to the education. It was mercy and grace that caused it to be given. So they can't be accused of being unfair. They can only be seen as merciful and generous and gracious in giving to those they chose to give it to. Verse 17. For this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It really comes down to, this whole chapter really comes down to the idea of why does the penny drop? Why does the penny drop? Why does salvation actually finally take place? You remember that game in the arcades you would go to and they drop all those pennies in the machine and there's that shelf below it and so all the pennies start gathering and you're supposed to drop another penny in and hopefully it'll move the whole thing so all the pennies will drop. And so the question here, as you think about salvation, what is it that causes the penny to drop? Is it, is it us? Or is ultimately, is it God that causes the penny to drop that moves salvation into one's life? And I think what the teaching of Romans 9 and other places say is that ultimately, it's God who has mercy. It's God who gives the grace. It's God who causes the penny to drop in salvation. That's not to say that we don't have a responsibility to believe. That's true. And guess what? One of the things that I discovered this week as I studied this is that Romans 9 comes before Romans 10. That's why I get paid the big bucks right there. <laughs> Romans 9 comes before Romans 10. We'll get to Romans 10 next week because it talks about having faith. So having faith and God choosing us are, are two sides of the same coin. But foundationally, what causes the penny to drop, according to Romans 9, is that God chooses first. And that causes salvation to spring into action. Keller says this, Since the wages of sin is death, the shock is not that God does not extend his compassion to everyone, but that he extends it to anyone. The next question comes in verse 19. He says, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? How can God blame us? That's the question beginning in, in 19 through 29. For who can resist his will? And verse 20, listen to these strong words again. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? 
Well, what is molded to say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. How can God blame us? And what Paul is saying here is, remember who you are. Remember who you're talking back to and let God be God. And what offends us here is in this passage is that God is being God. He is being sovereign over everything, including salvation. And when we object to it, we talk back to the God who created us. Another illustration here. How can God blame us? This, this, one, this is an illustration of D. James Kennedy. And, and uh, let's just pretend for a second that this front row here, all bad guys, okay, decide. They're my friends, but they're all bad folks. And they decide that they are going to, after church, they're going to go rob a bank, okay? And I'm trying to argue with them. I'm trying to stop them from doing this evil, okay? But they, they refuse to listen to me. They're going to go about and rob the bank, But what happens is as they push me aside and go on their way, I just dive out and grab Johanna and just tackle her by the legs. And she's not able to join the crowd, but the rest of them go to the bank while I tackle her and save her. And they go to the bank. They rob the bank. A guard is killed. They get arrested and they go to jail. Now, why are they in jail? By whose fault is it that they are in jail? It's by their own, right? But why is Johanna saved? Can she just walk around and boast, hey, I've got a good heart. I'm pretty pure. I've been saved. No, all her salvation totally belongs to me, to the guy that reached out, grabbed her, tackled her in her ill, evil intentions, and saved her from her choices. So, Kennedy, D. James Kennedy goes on to say, so those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus. Because he delivers us from our sin. God saves us. So that salvation is by God's grace from beginning to end. And to Western democratic, modern ears, this just gets all over us. Why? Because we want choice. We have choice. In fact, we even elect our president, right? The president doesn't elect us. We elect our king. We have the right. We, have, we give our government the consent to govern, right? That comes from us. But in God's economy, in God's kingdom, it's the king electing his servants, not the servants electing their king. But this grates all over Western American sentimentalities, does it not? Because we're all about choice and autonomy and my rights and being the captain of my soul and the captain of my ship. 
And in Romans chapter 9, Paul is writing back and saying, who do you think you're talking to? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Augustine says it like this. A merciful God delivers so many to the praise of the glory of his grace from deserved perdition. If he should deliver no one therefrom, he would not be unrighteous. Let him who is delivered love his grace. Let him who is delivered, let, let him who is not delivered acknowledge his due. In remitting a debt, goodness is preserved, is perceived, in requiting it, justice. Unrighteousness is never found with God. We all, uh, we all tend to come to the Bible from our biases. We all tend to interpret Scripture from our experience, right? And sometimes that, that gets us in trouble. When you think about the Apostle Paul's experience as he writes this, what, did, did, did Paul choose? Was he out seeking Christ when he became a Christian? No, he was running. He was persecuting Christians. And a light comes down from heaven and says, no, you are going to be my instrument. So it's not hard for Paul in the way he was converted to buy this, right? To, to absorb this teaching. And I think for a lot of people, if you've come to faith later in life, particularly, this is not as hard. You're like, man, I was not looking for God and he came and he found me. Those of us that kind of grew up in good homes and in the South and maybe your parents were Christians, it's like, it's all over you to think, yeah, I chose Jesus. But if you think about it from the Apostle Paul's perspective, man, he knew all over him that he was going the opposite direction and Jesus reached out and tackled him and saved him from his sin and put him on a new path. This is not the only uh, place in the scriptures that this is talked about. Okay, this is not only Romans 9. Let me give you some other places. Ephesians chapter 1, this is a huge topic. Peter, in both of his letters, the first chapter of 1 Peter and the first chapter of 2 Peter, allude to this idea of God's sovereignty even in salvation. And you look at Jesus' words in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. You can read those there. And if you want more of those, you can email me and I can send you more uh, study for yourself on that. You think, about, you think about elsewhere, other metaphors that we have for salvation in the New Testament. Think about adoption. Think about redemption. Think about birth or being born again. The Bible talks over and over about how salvation is spiritual birth, right? Does the, is, is the baby decide he's going to be born? And these illustrations and these analogies, they, they, they break down for all, all parts of salvation. But if you think about adoption... That, that baby is chosen. I know what that is. It's okay. Her audio Bible started. Could have been worse. The Bible uses this, this metaphor this, uh, of adoption. And in, in adoption, you see that that child is the recipient of some family's grace, of some family's mercy to adopt them into the family. You think about the idea of redemption being bought back. 
is the purchaser coming and buying that slave out of slavery to be in a new family. Redemption. Another one, as I said, birth. Is that, is, is that child conceived on his own? Or ultimately, was it, the, was it the parents that caused that conception, that caused that birth? Now, that's one side of the coin. We'll get to the other side of the coin when we get to Romans 10, where it talks over and over about faith and how will they believe unless they're preached to? How will they go unless they're sent? But the penny drops, according to Romans 9, because of God's mercy and not because of anything in us or any good work that we do. Two points of application just to kind of sum this up, okay? Number one, there's no reason for pride here. Hey, we're chosen. We, we believe in Jesus, so we're the chosen people. This is no reason for pride. This is actually a reason for humility, because it says there was nothing good in us. We did nothing to deserve this, so we should be even more grateful because we see that God has just chosen to set his affection upon us for nothing within us, but only because of his cause, because of his mercy, because of his grace. And second, there's no re- this is no reason for laziness. You know, the God that ordains the end is the God who ordains the means. And so in chapter 10, we're gonna see, unless we go and tell, people will not believe and they must believe. So this, those that have believed this doctrine of God electing his people, it has not, if they've truly understood it, it has not made them lazy. It has actually made them more confident in evangelism because they know that God has his people out there and they will come to faith. He's promised it. Whereas if you don't have this kind of confidence and you share your faith, you're like, hey, I'm just throwing it out there so maybe someone might believe. And if you have this view, you share the gospel confident that God is already working on hearts and that he will, in fact, bring salvation to those people. They will hear the gospel and they will receive it. And it also gives us a confidence, folks, that we are truly specially, especially loved by God. God loves the entire world. He does. But as you read Romans chapter 9 and you hear these harsh words, you also have to realize that for those God has chosen, he hasn't, God has not just said, hey, I love kind of the world generally. He's also said, I have loved you specially. I have set my affection and called you to myself. I love the world but I have loved you unto salvation. That ought to humble us. That ought to make us grateful people. And it ought to give us a confidence as we share the gospel that people will in fact respond because God is at work in them, bringing them to faith. Will you pray with me? Father God, again, we just come to you and we, uh, we know we are, we are reaching into mystery here. We are reaching into confusion. And nevertheless, Lord, you have put these words in your scriptures to instruct us, to, to uh, inflame and, and uh, bring life to our worship because we know the special love that you have for us. So God, I pray that we would receive your word, that we would not just tolerate it, 
but that we would embrace it, Father God. And you would so penetrate our hearts in it that our hearts would be so captivated, so amazed by your mercy in our lives that we could just not even conceive of distancing ourselves from you. Holy Spirit, impact our hearts with these mighty truths. Bring clarity to our eyes. Bring humility to our minds. Bring courage to our lips as we share this good news with others. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray.